The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive from March 20th, 2022. Russia invaded Ukraine just over three weeks ago. This week, a Russian woman ran onto the set of a Russian state television broadcast to protest the war and Russian disinformation. What is it like living in Vladimir Putin's Russia during this time of war, or even in times of widespread international peace? To gain insight into Putin's Russia, I chose an episode from February 2020. In this episode, Jacob Schultz interviews Joshua Yaffa, the Moscow correspondent for The New Yorker, to talk about his book, Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. The book gives a series of portraits of prominent figures within Putin's Russia and details the compromises they make to maintain their status and goodwill with the Kremlin. In this episode, Schultz and Yaffa discuss this framework as a way to understand Russia and what Putin's rule looks like on the peripheries of the country. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 8th, 2020. Russia continues to sporadically poke its head into American media headlines, whether it be for its role in Syria or for anxieties about fresh election interference in 2020. But these news stories seldom provide a window into life in Putin's Russia. I sat down with Joshua Yaffa, the Moscow correspondent for The New Yorker, about his new book, Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. The book gives a series of portraits of prominent figures within Russia and details the compromises they make to maintain their status and goodwill with the Kremlin. We talked about this as a framework to understand Russia, what Putin's rule looks like on the peripheries of the country, and we got into a couple of the portraits of the fascinating characters that animate the book. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 505, Joshua Yaffa on Putin's Russia. So the book is structured around a collection of characters who've achieved some degree of prominence in Russia, some of whom are more sympathetic than others, and they make some sort of compromise to sustain their position. And the organizing thesis of this book sort of centers around these compromises, Why is this an interesting way to think about Russia and to tell a story about what Putin's Russia has become? The notion came to me over time as I felt as a journalist, I first wrote in Russia for The Economist when I arrived now almost eight years ago and slowly transitioned to writing for The New Yorker where I I write now. And I felt like I wasn't able to get across an idea that was only slowly dawning on me. It took some time for me to understand it myself. Um, it wasn't a all-at-once epiphany. It was something I, I came to feel with time. But that oftentimes in, in my own understanding of Russia, the one I went into the job with and the one that I found myself returning to in my pieces, that there was this false dichotomy emerging in my own coverage of Russia and I think a lot of coverage of, of Russia and that there are the... Uh, bad and all-powerful oppressors. Putin is the figurehead of of this group and its kind of symbolic um, avatar. Uh, those who keep the Russian people down through this cage of repression and propaganda and all other manner of subterfuge. And then there are the 
let's say, latter-day Sakharovs, the, the, the brave freedom fighters who are being repressed and held back by that uh, repressive apparatus I just mentioned, and that those two forces are locked in this kind of existential battle, our sympathies as right-thinking Americans or, or Westerners, of course, is with that latter group, and that that's the prism through which we understand Russia and its internal political, social dynamics. And it's not that that's entirely untrue. There, there very much are uh, or is a class of powerful, venal, corrupt, repressive bureaucrats and, and state officials who do abuse power for their own benefit and, and for the um, continuance uh, of their own uh, power. And there are a group of very admirable and brave oppositionists, uh, uh, activists, um, uh, freedom fighters who, who deserve our support and um, recognition. But that's really not just uh, missing some of the story, that's missing much of the story is what I came to understand. And that what there's this huge group in the middle, people who aren't, as I write in the book, Stalin or Sakharov, that most people aren't either, actually. Most people are essentially trying to make do, have some, in a way that's totally recognizable to me, have, have some personal goals, ambitions, ideas about their lives, live in the time and place where they live, are in the system that they're in, and within that, want to achieve something yeah. uh, with, with their lives, with their uh, careers. They have some aims that are recognizable to me. I can hold those aims in, in admiration even. They want to achieve something with their life. They have some ideas, some ambitions in a way that makes them not all that different from you or I and the ideas or ambitions that we might have uh, as as Americans or whatever society or, or culture in which we live. The thing is, though, in Russia, if you are a person uh, with a particular level of ambition and, and begin actually to have the ability to realize some of those ambitions sooner or later, and in fact, sooner, you're going to butt into or up against uh, the state. And then you have to choose. Are you going to make some compromises in the furtherance of those perhaps totally virtuous and admirable goals? But then how do those compromises with time change you? I think of a uh, character in the book, the theater director, Kirill Serebnikov, who perhaps we can return to, but I remember being struck by a fact about Russian cultural life that someone told me in explaining why Kirill Serebnikov, this very avant-garde, very experimental theater director who had no affection for the Putin state whatsoever, nonetheless might have ended up in a position where he was benefiting from the Putin state's largesse at a moment which turned out to be short-lived, when the Putin state had an interest in supporting and furthering experimental and avant-garde art. And what this uh, acquaintance uh, or colleague of Srebnikov's explained to me was the degree to which cultural life in Russia, especially theaters and especially films, depends on state money. That's really the only game in town. And so the question rhetorical uh, that, the, that this person put to me is, it's not do you want to make a film with state money or without state money? That would be an easy question. The question is, do you want to make a film or not? And if you want to make a film, well, then suddenly you are exposing yourself to a whole set of questions and compromises that really complicate, I think, our understanding of the dynamic between the individual and the state and how people... Um, live, work, survive, thrive in that system. And it really complicated that prism that I talked about at the beginning of my answer to your question and helped me realize there's this whole swath of people, in fact, the majority of the country, living somewhere in between and understanding that complicated, nuanced, very gray moral zone was frankly fascinating to me, but I also thought held great explanatory power for understanding the way Russia really lives and works uh, in the in the Putin age. Yeah. So so one of the, the features of the book that struck me is 
this is about Putin's Russia, but very few of the personalities that you discuss have any interaction with the central Kremlin or anyone in Moscow. Instead, they're sort of left dealing with these local bureaucrats who have some loose tie to the Putin regime. And it's often those situations where these compromises are sort of the hardest to make or they're, they're the most inflexible. So I'm curious, how how does what one has to do differ when you're dealing with someone like Putin or if you're someone like, say, a Crimean zookeeper dealing with the local authorities in the newly Russian Crimea? How do those two things differ? What, is, what does the compromise look like on a more local scale? Well, you know, I'm happy you asked that question about what Putinism looks like at the periphery. Yeah. Because we spend so much time thinking about Putinism at its very core, what it's like, you know, within the immediate radius of the man himself. But at this point, 20 years into his rule, Putinism is a organism of its own that exists and, and lives and, and may continue to live long after its namesake leaves the political scene, if not the biological scene by just <laughs> dint of, of age and um, the inevitability of, you know, the passing of time. And so what you have is a lot of little Putins, let's say, or little would-be Putins all over uh, the country who, in exchange for nominal loyalty to the center and delivering what the center thinks of as its absolute non-negotiable priorities, certain election results, especially in a presidential cycle, following both the written and more importantly, oftentimes unwritten rules of the game for members of that system, they are allowed a wide degree of autonomy to rule their fiefdoms as they see fit. The most glaring example of that is Chechnya with the rise of Ramzan Kadyrov. I spend a good deal of the book um, talking about Chechnya and, and the compromises of a human rights worker in Kadyrov's Chechnya and how she makes uh, her own personal accommodation with that regime within a regime. But in the case of a place like Crimea, post-annexation after 2014, you had a lot of, quite hilariously, in fact, petty bureaucrats who were petty bureaucrats under the Ukrainian system who suddenly discovered their deep and abiding Russian patriotism uh, and became uh, petty bureaucrats under the Russian system, changing the flag in their offices and the, the presidential portrait that hangs above their desk, acting uh, as if... Uh, nothing had changed. And in some ways, nothing had changed in terms of their own understanding of their job, their relationship to the people they ostensibly governed, their responsibilities, and most importantly, privileges uh, that come with their position. Not much did change. And that was very interesting and, and, and kind of darkly uh, funny to uh, observe. And so what you have is people who use their positions, as I said, as as means most directly or most kind of venally as 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 positions of self-enrichment. But beyond that, there is something that really goes back to the age or the writing of Gogol about the petty ardor, uh, as, as he put it, of one's bureaucratic position. And there is not the notion in Russia that I think drives so much of American politics in which everyone from the president to municipal dog catcher is an employee of the people. That's that's a notion, you know, we pay your salary uh, is, is, I think, a healthy uh, aspect of American um, democracy. But that's not uh, the case uh, in, in, in Russia, all the way from the president to Crimean uh, dog catcher. Yeah. And so I'm curious, one of the, one of the things that, that I noticed in the book is the personalities that you cover are incessantly in court. They're always in court to the point where this Crimean zookeeper, Oleg Zubakov, I think you say he's in, in Russian courts for 157 days of the previous year that you had talked to him. So what role does this sort of Putin-esque legal system and judicial system play in sort of shaping the margins of these compromises and sort of limiting or enabling what's possible? And how does that work? Well, because... The Putin system, as I alluded to before, likes to adhere to a kind of surface or presentable rule of law 
facade, it's important for the Putin system to be a, to appear to be acting in accordance with its laws. And and here, of course, it quickly gets absurd because the Putin himself and and and, the, and those officials around him enjoy the privilege of adjusting and tweaking the law exactly as they see fit. So this is not a very difficult exercise to pull off. It's not hard to act in accordance to laws that you can change at a whim uh, and often do to suit your tactical or positional political needs. Nonetheless, the Putin system, it's important, I think, for its own understanding of its legitimacy uh, and how it views that question to be seen uh, to be acting in accordance with the law. And so therefore, the courts can become a instrument of where needed repression, pressure, achieving the kinds of political outcomes that the system wants. The courts are an instrument uh, to that end. One of the things that has been destroyed, if it ever really emerged at all in the Putin system, was the independence of the judiciary. I mean, that's one of the main ills of the Putin system. The phenomenon of so-called telephone justice, uh, as the phrase is translated uh, from Russian, which means uh, exactly like it sounds. A judge is in uh, his offices uh, preparing for the verdict, and he gets the call from a political higher-up instructing him what that verdict will be, what the sentence will be, and how he should manage the case. And therefore, Kremlin bureaucrats, political officials, view the courts as just another political instrument. They can call a judge the way they may call a governor, the way they may call the head of a political faction in the Duma to issue and and carry out ultimately political instructions. Um, And that certainly was the case with Oleg uh, Zubkov, he became an undesirable figure in the new post-annexation Russian Crimea. Even though he initially supported annexation, he thought of himself as a Russian patriot in the years when Crimea was Ukrainian. He longed to be part of Russia. He quickly uh, felt a quite dramatic and, and colorful degree of buyer's remorse once that actually happened. And as you said, ended up in court more days uh, than not. But the court system in, in Zubkov's case and in the case of, say, Alexei Navalny, the country's most prominent and popular opposition politician, court cases are used as a way of exhausting you, uh, distracting you, complicating uh, your life, draining your resources, draining uh, your time, and holding this perpetual sword of Damocles over you. Maybe the court case today is absurd and yeah, wastes your day and wastes your time and money, but the consequences may be house arrest or kind of probationary arrest. But tomorrow, the court case could be much serious. It could be for 10 years, for 20 years. And so the court is also a way of tying you up, but also making you aware that the state holds the ultimate power over your fate, really. Um, And that becomes an inevitable fact of life, which the characters in my book have to take into account and and have to navigate. Talk briefly about a case that I think is sort of illustrative of the absurdity of the judicial system is this protracted battle over a baby tiger cub that Zubakov has with the local authorities. There's this sort of prolonged tug of war over this very cute baby tiger. Tell me a little bit about that. Right. Well, when I was in Crimea, which is its own separate story as to how one gets to Russian annexed Crimea these days, a very complicated logistical and bureaucratic process that involves um, getting to Ukraine, getting necessary permits, taking a train, and and various other means of uh, transport to cross over this thin and and very contested land border between Ukrainian mainland and, and Crimea. Nonetheless, when I visited Zubkov, I happened to be there during a time when the legal case du jour in his life was this battle over uh, a baby tiger cub, Altai, who was arrested, I guess is the best way to put it, as Altai was traveling by ferry from Crimea to mainland Russia, where he was meant to take up a new life as a um, circus tiger, and was uh, apprehended along the way by the Crimean veterinary service, um, who put the tiger cub in its basement didn't really seem to know what to do with it once they had the tiger. There were rumors, actually, that 
members or officials from the veterinary service were going into the basement and taking selfies um, with Altai. He eventually ends up at the local zoo in Simferopol, where the zookeeper seemed to have wanted nothing to do with the tiger, but he was dropped uh, in his lap and, and didn't have the right to refuse. And there was one court hearing after another where Zubkov was fighting to get his tiger cub back. The veterinary service was coming up with all manner of reasons why they couldn't do that at one point, claiming they weren't even sure who this tiger belonged to. How did they know it was actually Zubkov's? To which Zubkov hilariously responded in court, even drawing a a laugh from the judge. Uh, It's not as if uh, we have uh, baby tigers in Crimea like chickens running around the yard. It's not so hard to figure out who uh, (laughs) this baby tiger might uh, belong to. There aren't uh, so many options or potential owners. Nonetheless, uh, the veterinary service kept the tiger, did all manner of medical analyses, drawing blood. And it seemed to me that the point of this wasn't that the Crimean Veterinary Service so desperately needed to have possession of the baby tiger Altai. It was for the reasons that we just alluded to. It was to frustrate Zubkov, uh, exhaust him, tie him up in court, have him spend more days in court than running his safari park. And his business did suffer because he was in one courtroom or another or with his lawyer more than he was actually managing um, the park. And it was a way of hanging this sort of Damocles I alluded to over Zubkov. In his case, there was always a danger that the park could be closed once and for all by the veterinary authorities. That was the real threat they were lording over him and continued to lord over him. Today, we take your tiger. Tomorrow, we show up and just put a padlock on the whole thing. And that was the reality or the, or the possible reality that, that Zubkov had to live uh, in, in, in fear of, essentially, and, and, and try and navigate around and make these kinds of compromises uh, around. So you alluded to your, your difficulty in getting to the modern Crimea, and you find yourself in this book in some pretty remarkable places. You're, you're on Russian state TV as sort of like the punching bag of these ridiculous, bombastic TV hosts. You're in the Chechen mountains having tea what was it like reporting this book and what was sort of the most what was the most memorable sort of incident throughout your reporting? It was a real pleasure to report the book. Certainly more pleasurable to report the book than write the book. <laughs> um, though that's, uh, I think, a standard and familiar dynamic for, for most writers. I found it just personally fascinating to, to try and get into the heads of my characters and to understand how they understood for themselves these questions of compromise, what the red lines were for them, how they maneuvered or danced around them, and and to just hear them reflect on how they might have changed as a result of of their compromises. All these questions that really interested me, but just to get people talking quite openly or or, or in a way that sometimes surprised, even startled me, the, the way that my characters were ready to if not exactly bare their souls, to really be open and honest about how these compromises have functioned um, in their own lives and, and what they might even, if not regret, but you know where that they think those compromises might have led them astray, what they think they've gained from those compromises. They were really frank conversations that I was very grateful to have. You know, one experience that comes to mind, I don't know if it was my favorite, that's maybe not the right way of describing it, but one of the more memorable came in uh, on the site of the former prison camp uh, that was called Perm 36 in Soviet days. It held a number of high-profile dissidents, especially in the late Soviet years in the 70s and 80s. It was really one of the last prison camps that held political prisoners right up until the collapse of the Soviet Union. The last political prisoner walked out of Perm uh, 36 in 1989, and the prison only closed with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Long story short, the site of that camp was turned into a museum to uh, the history of political repressions and the gulag by a number of local historians who, at the beginning, ran the place as a kind of DIY project, a DIY site of historical memory. That only lasted for so long. The local authorities and the authorities in Moscow eventually arranged 
what you can only call as a hostile takeover, a kind of raider attack against the museum, turning it into a state-run institution with a much different and softer cast in how it told the story of political repressions and certainly did not make any links between the political repressions of the Soviet age and what is happening in Russia today, something that the initial founders were quite keen uh, to do and saw as really their mission in running the museum. The new authorities want nothing to do with those sorts of comparisons. And I went to Perm 36 and its current iteration to try and understand both the history of the place, its history as a prison, its history as a museum in the 90s and 2000s, but also the compromises required of its new administrators and leadership. While I was there, and I should say the prison and now museum is located about two hours uh, outside of Perm. Perm is a city in the Ural Mountains. It was a closed city for much of the Soviet period because it housed several munitions uh, factories that were central to the Russian military industrial uh, complex, or Soviet rather. Um, it's Perm is about three hours or so by plane from Moscow. It's right on the edge of the Ural Mountains. Perm 36 is another two or three hours into really the middle of nowhere, into the forest from Perm. And I was so taken by the place and had put in enough effort to get there that at the end of my reporting day there, talking to the uh, museum's new administrators, touring the exhibits, I didn't want to return to Perm, the city, a three-hour drive, only to come back three hours again the next day because I wasn't done with my reporting. I wanted a second day. So at the at the close of uh, my first day, I asked if there was some place in the nearby village to stay. I mean, the village was really just a collection of four or five houses, um, one of which, interestingly, was inhabited by a former guard who worked at the prison uh, who now lives there. Um, and does some odd jobs around the museum and got a chance to talk to him, but that's a a separate story. Um, The only option that I was given at the end of this day was to sleep uh, in the barracks, essentially. That there's a bed, there's a place you can sleep, here is a kettle for making tea, we'll be back in the morning. And both for reasons of logistical efficiency and at that point for repertorial curiosity, I took them up on the offer. So uh, I guess I was given a slight upgrade, if that's the right word, and that eventually they found a place for me in what had been the guards barracks. So I I had the overnight experience not as a prisoner, but as a guard, which maybe was even more troubling uh, in in experience uh, or or a curious one. And it was in the middle of winter. Uh, It was freezing outside, big snow banks out the window. And I went to sleep in a very small, uh, bare-bones room. I should say, you know, not that much different, actually, than the conditions in which the prisoners slept. Uh, uh, And that was actually something remarked to me by both former prisoners and former guards about how their conditions actually were perhaps more similar than different. And um, I spent a very fitful and um, psychologically intense, shall we say, night sleeping on a uh, thin, uncomfortable cot in the former guards barracks of this uh, prison, waking up to have the place totally to myself. And and it was quite beautiful. That was actually something remarked to me by a former political prisoner there, a remarkable and very interesting man named Mikhail Mailuk, who was held there for some years in the 80s because of a stash of forbidden Samizdat literature the KGB (laughs) found at his uh, possession in then Leningrad. And one of the things that Mylach relayed to me from his years there as a prisoner was how if you abstracted to the extent that was possible out from why you were there and what you were doing there, if you looked around, the surroundings were actually quite beautiful. The trees, the birds, the hills in the distance. And and I thought of that myself when I woke up, uh, took a stretch and and walked around the completely empty, still snow-covered grounds that it was actually quite beautiful. And, and that was a very interesting and impactful way to, to spend the night and a way to really get a sense uh, of the place that I hope comes through in the, in the chapter about Perm 36. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. 
That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. I want to talk about some of the personalities that animate your book. One of them is a palliative care doctor who is maybe the most striking example in your book of this motif of compromise. She's someone who starts off caring for the sick and the homeless in, in Moscow. And how does she get to a position where she's able to personally intervene to ask a favor of Vladimir Putin during a Kremlin inner circle meeting? Sure. Uh, the the doctor you mentioned, Elizaveta Glinka, who was known widely uh, in Russia as Dr. Lisa, became uh, a really beloved, if not saintly, in the eyes of many people, character um, who emerged uh, in the mid-2000s as someone who, as you mentioned, was really one of the pioneers of palliative care in Russia. That was the field of medicine that didn't really exist in the Soviet Union and hadn't emerged in the years after. Um, and she not only was working uh, with the terminally ill, visiting them at home, bringing them medicines and simply providing just a, a helping hand and a shoulder to cry on, but started to work with the homeless population of Moscow and really all sorts of marginalized communities that in the go-go boom years oil at you know $130 a barrel Moscow were kept out of sight and many people preferred uh, not to see or, or pretend didn't exist. But but Dr. Lisa very much saw them and, and was very much aware of their existence and really made it her mission to provide services and care to them with a real human touch. And I think that's what made her uh, eventually so popular uh, across a wide swath of Russian society. She was one of a small number of figures who was able to enjoy the support and affection of everyone from Kremlin bureaucrats to avowed Russian liberals who were in every other question on the opposite side of the barricades of those Kremlin bureaucrats. And, and she really could walk between those worlds and, and many others because she had this very unique uh, profile and, and, and very unique personality. She really was a woman apart in the best possible sense of the word. And it was that reputation and that image which brought her to the attention of the Kremlin. And she was invited to join the Kremlin Human Rights Council, a very curious body that I think is actually important as a way of understanding how Russian power, how Russian government really works under Putin. And while Russia is definitely, uh, especially as the Putin years have gone on, become an outright authoritarian state, I mean, with, with the kind of nominal outward trappings of democracy under the hood, it is a centralized authoritarianism overseen by Putin. Nonetheless, it does have these kind of trappings of democratic institutions, the window dressing of democratic institutions. And sometimes, even if they're meant to serve as window dressing, those institutions can function partially like the way they're supposed to on paper. They can actually achieve something. They do play a limited episodic role, but they're not non-existent. It's not North Korea. There are these uh, many moving parts that you know, sometimes can influence politics and the function of governance. And the Kremlin Human Rights Council is one of those places. Oftentimes, ineffectual, largely decorative, readily ignored, but with uh, nonetheless a position inside the system and enough of a presence that every now and then it can have real impact on a very limited or specific set of questions, right? It's not influential in a big macro across the board way and, and the you know general trajectory of Russian politics. The Kremlin Human Rights Council is not going to convince Putin not to intervene in Ukraine, for example. That's far beyond their remit. But within that intervention, and that's what we'll get to in a moment, they can have a voice on acute self-contained questions. And that's where uh, the scene that you mentioned come, comes into play. So Dr. Lisa was invited to join this council because of her reputation, because of her profile, the fact that she was beloved by so many different segments of Russian society. 
And the way she saw it, why shouldn't she uh, take a position that would give her more access to the kinds of people who are in a position to let her do good? If she wanted to do her good works, let's call them, and they were good works, recognized by all, there seems to be no doubt about that with her work with the terminally ill and the homeless. If she wanted more resources, more access, more influence to be able to uh, positively impact the lives of more people, well, why shouldn't she take that invitation? And so it was in that spirit that she took the seat on the Human Rights Council. And uh, a couple years into her tenure, the first Russia annexed uh, Crimea, then began uh, to prop up and fuel a would-be faux separatist insurgency in eastern Ukraine, which led to a quite real and, and bloody conflict. Within the contours or the context of that conflict, uh, Dr. Liza wanted a seemingly small but potentially impactful change in Russian law made, the kind of thing that would have to come uh, from or at least with Putin's imprimatur uh, to allow those fleeing the conflict zone in Ukraine to be given uh, free, um, high-quality medical care at Russian state uh, hospitals. And Lisa brought up this issue, used her the, the power of her own uh, personality, of her own story, of her own credibility to make this appeal uh, to Putin, and he did it. And, and with one stroke of the pen, suddenly hundreds of families were able to get medical care in Russia. And it's a hard thing to argue against, right? As a American journalist in Russia, I'm not used to cheering on various administrative or bureaucratic moves of Putin. Uh, but the reason I found this story so fascinating and included the whole arc of Dr. Lisa's uh, story in, in the book, and we can talk uh, a bit about how uh, it ends, because it ends quite resonantly and tragically. But in this particular moment, she really used her position to do a bit of very concrete, self-contained good. Yeah. And that compromise really fascinated me and gets to the overarching uh, prism or, or thesis um, of, of, of the book and, and about what people can achieve in difficult circumstances, how far they're willing to go, what they're willing to give up in exchange in terms of their own personal beliefs, their own personal kind of position or, or, or credibility. Are those trade-offs worth it? And how does a person, him or herself, change as a result of those compromises? Yeah, what came of Dr. Lisa? Well, Dr. Lisa continued to bring sick and injured, especially children, out of the war zone in Donbass in eastern Ukraine to Russia um, for medical care, something that made her position increasingly more difficult or fraught. That kind of uh, affection that she enjoyed from all quarters of Russian society began to wane because she was engaged in a very political war, even if she saw her participation in it as entirely non-political. She was just helping those in need. War by nature, and this one specifically or especially, was a very political endeavor, and many people saw her as at least implicitly taking sides. So, for example, the affection she once enjoyed among Russian liberals began to wane. Many saw her as somehow in cahoots or, or, or lending her credibility to the Putin uh, systems and didn't like that. Well, the degree to which Kremlin bureaucrats held her in high esteem rose. So her position shifted as a result of, of Ukraine in ways that she didn't like and found unfortunate and really saddened her. But at the same time, she wasn't going to let her own personal feelings get in the way of what she saw as a much more important task of, of helping yeah. uh, those who, who, who needed it, the, the sick and injured and, and people who she had the opportunity to get to the medical care they needed and, and to not do that to try and save her own reputation to her was no dilemma at all. As time went on and she uh, her, her profile rose even further and the Kremlin understood the power of her brand, let's say, the Dr. Lisa brand, and uh, understood that by, let's say, standing shoulder to shoulder with her, they could benefit a bit from her humanitarian aura. However, 
transparent a propaganda ploy that was, nonetheless, by celebrating and elevating Dr. Lisa, it was as if they could benefit a bit from her halo to stand yep. in it a bit themselves. And so when Russia began its intervention in Syria with a massive uh, air campaign ostensibly to combat ISIS, but in reality to prop up Assad, which also had a ground component as well, a presence in Syria that continues today, the defense ministry was very keen to bring Dr. Lisa on board in that operation as well, to give it this kind of humanitarian sheen. And so she traveled to Syria at the defense ministry's request, visiting hospitals, uh, delivering medicines, that sort of thing, what Dr. Lisa was what she was known for and what she was good at and what the Russian public loved her for. And it was on one of these trips in December uh, 2016. She was flying to Syria just before the new year uh, with uh, officials from the defense ministry, also a storied uh, Russian military uh, ensemble, a musical uh, ensemble. Uh, Their plane crashed shortly after takeoff uh, from Sochi, uh, a city on the Black Sea, as they were flying toward Syria uh, killing everyone on board. So Dr. Lisa died on one of these missions uh, in at the end of 2016. Uh, a, a huge loss, uh, of course, for her, for her family, for her husband Gleb, who I interviewed at length uh, for this book, but also for the many hundreds, thousands. I'm not even sure how to count them. People across Russia who really saw her as a very unique, selfless character and and, and hero for the post-Soviet age. Post-Soviet Russia has been marked by a high degree of cynicism and and selfishness. Those are some of the kind of most common, perhaps necessary traits of survival for the post-Soviet and especially Putin age. And But Dr. Lisa didn't have those qualities and she had something of the opposite. She was a really selfless character in a way that really attracted people and made her quite a rare uh, hero for the for the Putin age, and her loss was felt particularly uh, acutely for that reason. So I want to talk a little bit about maybe the highest profile person in the book that you profile is Konstantin Ernst, who is the he's now he's the CEO of Channel One News, sort of the the big Russia TV company. And I'm curious what what Ernst was like, and sort of what Ernst compromised has been and and still is today. I found Ernst on a personal level to be a really genial, interesting conversationalist, a great storyteller, welcoming once we finally arranged our series of interviews and and seemingly quite open. It's hard for me to judge, hard for me to know what I don't know. In other words, what he maybe left out from his uh, stories and retelling of his own life. But the part that he did tell me seemed really bracingly open and even kind of intimate in some moments. The reason I think he agreed to talk to me or was interested in having his story feature in the book is it gets to his self-perception, which in a sense then leads to this, what his compromises might be or, or have been. But he very much sees himself as a sophisticated cosmopolitan esthete. And I think he really is. I think that he can credibly claim that designation for himself. He came out of the world of perestroika-era counterculture in the 80s, and his first show on television, he had long hair and wore a leather motorcycle jacket and talked about uh, Fassbinder movies and and really was into alternative avant-garde culture. And still, even though he's risen through the ranks to really become the most powerful figure in Putin-era media, that's still how he sees himself, or that part of his biography is still very central to his understanding of himself, and he's still kind of this quasi-rebel within the Putin system, even though, of course, he's not really. His his loyalties, when push comes to shove, very much lie with um, the Kremlin and with the priorities and needs of the Putin system on a day-by-day basis, but he still gets, I think, a bit of a thrill of thinking of himself as a fish out of water. He's this esthete, he's this auteur with a real cinephile's eye for the good and the worthy and the beautiful, and he's doing something very different than the other 
propagandists elsewhere in the Kremlin's media empire. And, and that's true, I think, that Channel One actually does have a particular and different aesthetic that is largely a credit to Ernst and his understanding of what is beautiful and worthy. As one of his friends said to me, Constantine is an intellectual and an esthet, but I don't think he's a liberal. And, and that is a pithy and I think very accurate way of understanding him. So often, at least in my world, those three attributes go together, so much so that I'm, I'm not used to making the distinction between them or don't always think to make the distinction between them. If you have two, then you likely have the third and right. in some interchangeable combination. But in Ernst's case, that's, that's not true. He's very much the first and the second, but, but not the third. And that gets to the question of his compromise, which may actually be less than some other characters in my book. Because uh, while he does have a high degree of aesthetic sophistication and integrity, if he's not deep down a liberal, then he's not necessarily compromising with his personal or political values in being the propagandist in chief atop the country's television station with the widest reach, which airs on its news programming all sorts of what can only be called propaganda offerings, praising Putin, you know, criticizing and, and casting aspersion on, on the U.S. and the West and its intentions more broadly. He seems to be a true believer in the Putin system. And so carrying that political message doesn't seem to him like a great compromise. What does seem like a compromise is when he's forced or feels uh, like he can't say no to airing propaganda that is in some way tawdry or aesthetically cheap, right. let's say. Yep. That, I think, to him feels like a compromise. It's not the, it's not the message. It's, it's the form. It's when he feels like he, for whatever reason, can't say no to a particular piece of propaganda that doesn't meet his standards, let's say, the, the intellectual and aesthetic standards. Uh, but it's not a question of political values in his case. Right. And so there's one very interesting exchange between you and Ernst where you're talking about his channel's coverage after the downing of MH17, um, which is the, the Malaysian Airlines flight flying over the Donbass that ultimately got shot down. Everyone on board died. And you're having this exchange with him about to sort of the Dutch official report on what happened and sort of the Putin-esque version or versions of events that his network was really cooperative, if not sort of willingly helping to propagate. And you, you're sort of reflecting on your exchange and you say, talking with Ernst about this, it was as if we were arguing about religion or aesthetics rather than a set of facts. And sort of what do you what do you mean by that? And what is what is Ernst's view of information and of fact sort of represent about the Putinesque outlook on the truth? I think what I meant in that sentence by the distinction between religion and aesthetics as opposed to facts is you can have a kind of abstract intellectual debate about religion or aesthetics. Two, you know, high powered thinking minds can get together and and, and you know, debate in some intellectually stimulating way what they think about some aesthetic question or, or religion. And in fact, it's more interesting and, and there's more kind of intellectual friction if you disagree that that's somehow actually the maybe even the point of the exercise. Whereas facts are grounded in a immutable objective universe where there actually is one version of the truth and other versions that purport to be the truth are frankly, wrong, because there can only be one ultimate, you know, objective version of, of events. And Ernst seemed to view the story of what happened to MH17 and the conflicting theories, though I'm already actually catching myself speaking in the language of Ernst a bit, uh, <laughs> right. in that only one thing happened to MH17, not multiple things, and there can't be multiple versions or theories of what happened. One concrete thing happened to shoot down that plane. And by all accounts, it seems that Russia provided an anti-aircraft system to the rebel forces it was supporting who shot down the plane by mistake. That's what happened. There can't be right. alternative versions or theories about that. But for Ernst, I don't want to say it was exactly a game, 
But there was a kind of degree of intellectual sport or jousting in that conversation, as if we were having this intellectual repartee (laughs) about, you know, what films, what art house films we liked. And I had to catch myself in that conversation. And as you can see now in, in this one, to ground myself in a realm of objective facticity, as opposed to this realm of belief, of taste, of intellectual sparring that Ernst returns to time and again, because I think he genuinely is suspicious of this notion of objective canonical truth. And I think feels, as I write in the book, that he wears his cynicism as a sign of enlightenment. I think there were times in our conversations, which echoes feelings I've had talking with all manner of Russians, especially from the world of Putin officialdom, but not only that my sincerity or the kind of earnestness and sincerity of Americans more broadly is a sign of their fundamental naivete and that a more cynical read of the world and how it works is essentially more enlightened understanding of of how the world works. And I certainly felt that with Ernst. So we're going to have to wrap up in a second, but one of the aspects, so the MH17 example it brings to bear the extent to which people like Ernst and the people in this book really do play an important role in propping up the Putin regime. So Ernst's channel, when they broadcast these sort of conflicting, you could call them disinformation-esque reports about what happened to MH17, they're bringing Putin's version of the truth to the wide Russian audience. To what extent do these people, the people that you feature in your book and sort of similar people across the country actually play in sustaining Putin's role? And really to end, do they, does this ever stop? Does, do these compromises ever end? And does the, the stream of agreement just dry up? I, mean, I think they play a, a huge role in, in, in sustaining Putin's rule and making it possible in the first place and continuing to, to hold it up. That's one of, if not the central animating thesis of the book, really, is that by understanding these compromises, you understand what fuels the Putin system. And the fact of how perhaps kind of nefariously and unfortunately, but nonetheless inevitably, the Putin system gets this buy-in from so many of its most capable and ambitious citizens is what gives it its longevity, really, right? It, It finds a way to incorporate and implicate, in some cases, people who have the most to offer and who in any system would find a way to thrive. And the Putin system gives them that opportunity in very constricted ways, oftentimes in ways that require a lot um, of those people, but gets them into the system, makes them oftentimes against their own initial desires, part of that system, like returning to someone like Dr. Lisa. She wanted nothing to do with politics. She was studiously apolitical in her efforts to help uh, those in need. But the Putin system was able to bring her in by offering her uh, an unparalleled degree of of resources, uh, but nonetheless taking something from from her in in the process. She eventually died uh, as as a result uh, of her relationship with the state. And so I think the way the Putin system brings those citizens in and and makes them part of that fabric of the system itself really is what gives it its uh, durability and and longevity. How much longer that can go on, I don't know. I, I don't think that's somehow historically inevitable in Russia. There's nothing in Russia's cultural or biological DNA that makes that an inherent part of the system and the way the state functions. That's the way it functions now. That could change, perhaps, first and foremost, as a result of generational change as a new generation comes of age that wasn't shaped by the dual traumas of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the anarchy and disorder of the 90s, things that really shaped certainly Putin, those of his age and those who lived through those experiences. Now there's a whole generation which will soon take on positions of power, the so-called Putin generation, people who were born already 
in the age of Putin and have known no other president. They actually show higher degrees of trust, less degrees of cynicism than generations that have come before them. So there's less of ingredients in that cocktail of compromise baked into the way they uh, navigate the world. So that may change. But at the same time, the system may yet succeed in, in incorporating that generation as well. So I don't know what form exactly this kind of compromise will take. But I should say, this is a universal phenomenon, not particular to Russia, very acutely felt in the United States these days. And in, in Trump's Washington, I think there's no manner of officials in government, people outside of government who would feel like they're navigating a similar dance of compromise, wanting to do good, being tempted by joining the system, being wary of the system, but perhaps feeling like that's the place where they can either minimize harm or at least do some self-contained good. So shouldn't they take that opportunity? So in, in, in closing, I'd like to say that you know, I hope that the themes of this book resonate much wider than just Russia itself. It's it's a way of understanding Russia, most certainly, but I think it's also a way to reflect on our own societies that are certainly far from free of these same kinds of questions of compromise. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Joshua Yaffa for coming on the show. His book is Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast and share it on Facebook and Twitter. Your audio engineer this week was Hadley Baker. The podcast is produced by Jen Patiahau, and your music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.